Hello, and welcome to Pin Drop World News, the show where, each week, we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, and today we're bringing our listeners something a little different, looking at one specific issue in a country long-term listeners will remember we've already covered. In this episode, we're returning to the small Caucasus country of Georgia, which, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has witnessed the arrival of over 200,000 Russian citizens. We'll be speaking with Georgian political analyst Salome Kandalaki and American journalist Aaron Osilevsky about these Russians and what their presence in this country of 3.7 million people means for Georgia. As always, we'll conclude with a panel of the Pindrop producers to discuss the news, including Nick Castillo, who has been based out of Tbilisi, Georgia, since early June. Now for some background. We've covered Georgia before on this show, but for a quick review, Georgia is located in the South Caucasus region, bordering Turkey, Russia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, with a sizable coastline on the Black Sea. It has a population of 3.7 million, 1.1 million of which live in the capital city of Tbilisi. Its governing party at the moment is the Georgia Dream Party, which has recently fallen under critique for what some view as authoritarian tendencies, pro-Russian stances, and ties to Bidzina Ivanishvili, the richest man in Georgia. On a lighter note, Georgians have a strong claim to be the birthplace of wine, supported by both archaeological and linguistic evidence. Now, on to today's topic. While the most immediate and intense effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine were felt by the Ukrainians themselves, the war and the rapidly shifting political and economic situation in Russia itself have triggered an exodus of primarily younger and often well-educated Russians. An initial wave left immediately following the outbreak of the war in February, to be followed seven months later by a second wave prompted by the beginning of civilian military mobilization. There are no exact numbers on how many Russians have fled, with estimates ranging from 700,000 to 1 million. It is clear, however, that this is the biggest wave of migration from Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. These Russians fled to a variety of countries, including Kazakhstan, the Baltic states, and Israel. But hundreds of thousands crossed the border in Georgia, often by foot or bicycle. These Russians arrived in Georgia due to the proximity, comparatively low cost of living, and especially a unique visa-free regime by which all foreigners are given a year-to-stay visa-free in the country. To restart a new year, all one has to do is leave Georgia and re-enter, meaning, in theory, one could continually live, work, and even own property in Georgia without legal resident status, and all they would have to do is depart and return to the country every 11 months. As of this podcast recording, somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 Russians are in Georgia, between 3 to 5% of Georgia's population. They are, by and large, located in the capital city of Tbilisi and the coastal city of Batumi. These are Russians who, most often, have little to no legal status. What has this meant for Georgia? 
Well, if you were to listen to the Georgian Dream Party, these Russians, often educated tech or information workers, have brought newfound economic growth to Georgia. Prime Minister Irakil Garibashvili attributed Georgia's 10% GDP growth in 2022 to these new arrivals. But if you were to speak with everyday Georgians, they are more likely to mention soaring rent costs in Tbilisi, or new and expensive bars and cafes where only Russian is spoken. Students and poorer Georgians report being priced out of the market. Last February, one financial organization found that rent in Tbilisi had increased, on average, by 77% in the last year. Pair this with broader economic problems, with a third of Georgians reporting they struggle on a monthly basis to afford basic necessities like food, and one can understand the frustration. When polled on this issue, 66% of Georgians favor installing a visa regime that would limit the entrance of Russians. Add into this a host of political and cultural issues, and you can see where things might go. Georgia was annexed by the Tsarist Empire in 1801 and was an imperial possession from then until the collapse of the Russian Empire at the tail end of World War I. In 1918, Georgia declared itself an independent republic only to be forcefully occupied by the Red Army in 1921 and incorporated into the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 didn't bring an end to complex and hostile relations between Georgia and its northern neighbor. The early 1990s brought a series of wars with two breakaway provinces, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, who, backed by Moscow, succeeded in separating from Georgia. Georgia, Russia, and these provinces went to war again in 2008, a war that saw a decisive Russian victory and looting and destruction throughout Georgia by Russian and separatist forces. These wars generated hundreds of thousands of internally displaced Georgians, most of whom lost their homes within the breakaway regions. For many Georgians, Russia has been and continues to be an occupier and colonial force, feelings made all the more intense by the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Many are open about these feelings, Pindrops Nick Castillo has been in Georgia now for two months. So I'm walking down Rustavelli Avenue right now. It's one of the major commercial centers of Tbilisi. And in the last, you know, four or five blocks, maybe I've seen four or five Ukrainian flags and four or five Georgian flags spray painted on the walls. I just passed by something where someone had spray painted Russia as a terrorist state. Um, you know, you, you, you see this kind of stuff constantly in Tbilisi. Um, we, there's anti-Russian graffiti everywhere. There's pro-Ukrainian and pro-Georgian graffiti everywhere. Um, and it really is something that uh, is representative of the broader perspective people here have in Georgia. Uh, I'm here on a Russian language program. And when you speak with Georgians, um, and, I, and I tell them that I'm here to study Russian, one of the things they say sort of jokingly is, why are you studying Russian? Russia is an occupier. And even though it's said jokingly to me, it is clearly representative of, of the general feeling in Tbilisi, um, which is really anti-Russian and really pro-Ukrainian and pro-Georgian. Given this history, it's not surprising that the appearance of hundreds of thousands of Russians, not to mention Russian-speaking bars and clubs, has stoked cultural tensions. The vast majority of Georgians, upwards of 70 to 80 percent in most polls, 
want to integrate within Western institutions like NATO and the EU. But for many, especially the young, the arrival of so many Russians not only brings back memories of what they consider a colonial period, but strengthens ties to a fundamentally hostile state. Take, for instance, the Russian language. Even though it has declined since the Soviet Union, in 2012, 37% of Tbilisi residents reported Russian fluency. Almost all older Georgians are capable speakers, as are a significant number of young people. Especially for the younger generation, this is not only impractical compared to, say, English, but a culturally painful fact representative of colonial and oppressive experiences. Georgia had steadily been moving towards English as the dominant second language, but the arrival of so many Russians seems to have brought Russian back to the streets of Tbilisi. Then there are the Russians themselves. Over 100,000 are now in Georgia, a fact that begs further questions. How do these Russians perceive the role of their country in this region? How are they politically organizing, in some cases, against their home country? Will they stay in Georgia long term? And what will the implications of that be? To discuss all of these political, cultural, and economic issues, we now take you to our guest interviews. Salome Kandelaki is a project coordinator and policy analyst at the Georgian Institute of Politics. She is currently a doctoral candidate in political science at Tbilisi State University and is an invited lecturer at the European University, Georgia. In December of 2022, alongside Dr. Corneli Kakachia, she published a policy memo titled The Russian Migration to Georgia, Threats or Opportunities. Pindrop co-producer Nick Castillo spoke with her about the economic and political impact of the Russians on Georgia. You mentioned the economic effects uh, of these migrants coming in, that the first wave are these highly educated IT specialists, uh, the second wave, it, it, it's not the same kind of situation. Um, so could you please unpack the economic ramifications of Russian migration into Georgia and the way that's affecting the lives of everyday people in this country? Uh, sure. Uh, so we can differentiate uh, like the, the two groups uh, of uh, Russian citizens, like one uh, who are uh, employed, uh, who are well qualified and who can compete on the labor market. Uh, which is a uh, kind of problem uh, because like we are uh, living in a small country and uh, uh, if they start competing with uh, Georgian citizens that will be kind of uh, um, uh, kind of challenge not only for citizens but for the government of Georgia and for companies because uh, like everybody wants to have a skilled uh, task force. Uh, but uh, on, we also need to consider that uh, uh, Russians started uh, registering uh, their own companies. And uh, uh, now we know that they have registered more than 20,000 companies in Georgia in one year. So which is a uh, uh, real challenge. Uh, since uh, some of the companies are um, uh, like uh, from uh, touristic industries, they are opening um, restaurants, uh, like uh, service uh, companies, uh, and they are employing Russian citizens. 
So it means that they are kind of isolated and they are not involving and integrating with Georgians. Um, uh, so another this matter of discussion whether Georgians really want to get engaged and be integrated, but uh, but the fact is that like uh, they are also kind of isolated. So uh, at some point uh, this. Uh, um, line will disappear because uh, if we see that they are um, based here for a long time, if we see uh, the tendency that they are buying flats uh, and con compactly residing uh, in different cities, then uh, we can't avoid like this integration. Uh, with Russians, and uh, uh, at this point, we also see a problem of language barrier. Uh, not all youngsters know Russian as fluently as the English language, and uh, for example, German. Uh, it's not the case uh, with elder generation, but youngsters uh, are more like Western-minded. Say. Uh, are educated mostly either in Georgia or in European countries, so uh, it will be really very difficult for them to somehow um, um, integrate with Russians, to say simply. And uh, no, uh, apart from the language barriers, there is a big cultural uh, difference. Uh, there might be a clash. Uh, in the future, there is a risk, like we somehow managed not to have any conflict, like big conflicts that could have reached the attention of the international audience. But of course, like uh, since we see the creeping occupation uh, from the Russian side uh, of our territories, and since uh, we don't even have the frozen conflict, like we have this ongoing frozen, uh, ongoing conflict, which is like creeping occupation and the hybrid war. And now, like additionally, we see the migration. So, like we somehow need to pay attention uh, to different trends, what is uh, uh, going uh, in our country. But at the same time, uh, you know that 84% of Georgian population thinks that we need to. Uh, do everything to integrate in uh, European Union, and uh, up to 80% thinks the same about the NATO integration. So it's kind of uh, very problematic for the Georgian government uh, to somehow ignore the will of the Georgian society. And uh, here we see that uh, in the official statements, they always say that of course, they are doing everything for uh, EU integration and they are um, willing to implement uh, the reforms, uh, fulfill their recommendations as conditionalities uh, that was posed by uh, the EU. But on the uh, other hand, we also see uh, like the different rhetoric, like uh, uh, criticism towards the West, uh, which uh, seems very... Uh, challenging and uh, confusing uh, for uh, our international partners. So uh, at some point, uh, people might think that uh, uh, we are really in danger. Uh, we also face a military threat 
uh, that might come from Russian side, and that's why like our government tries to somehow be more uh, moderate and balanced. But uh, uh, but uh, at the same time, we see the criticism and cutting the ties with Ukrainian government and uh, some. And partners, for example, like hatred towards the European parliamentary m- members, like uh, who were just criticizing, um, like governmental steps, and then like backwards, like the government was criticizing them. So it's a kind of very uh, tricky situation, confusing for like expert community, for Georgian society and uh, um, uh, politicians uh, who are mostly uh, basically the opposition parties, most of them are, uh, as they declare, pro-European. Uh, so that's why uh, they have visited uh, Brussels um, during this one year many times. They were in Ukraine at least twice. Uh, they sent humanitarian aid, uh, like um, bought some um, um, cars for like uh, ambulance, like emergency purposes. So. Um, so we see that uh, like the society and opposition is uh, very solidar towards uh, Ukraine and uh, they try their best uh, and uh, uh, like uh, as for the government of Georgia they also send the humanitarian aid uh, to them but uh, we also see that like they're accepting so many Russian citizens we already have here more than uh, 100,000 Russians who are based, like who, not the ones who are coming from time to time and living, but the ones who stayed here in Georgia. Uh, So um, that becomes a tendency, and especially after opening the uh, direct flights, renewing this, uh, uh, like, uh, and uh, just... uh, uh, stopping the visa regime that's, uh, that will uh, increase the number uh, of Russians in Georgia. So we might uh, see Russians as the uh, majority in the minority. Like, they will be the biggest part of the minority uh, in Georgia because we all, you know, we have uh, Armenian minorities, Azerbaijan minorities yes. here who are based here, who are living, who are citizens of Georgia, and we are well integrated. Uh, but uh, we have not faced such kind of uh, figures since the uh, 90s. Uh, so that might change the demographic situation as well. Now we turn to our second guest interview. Aaron Ozalewski is a researcher, writer, and journalist with an expertise in the former Soviet Union. Currently, he is a research and writing fellow at the Institute of Current World Affairs, where he focuses on Russian immigrants who left their country after the invasion of Ukraine. In the past, his work has appeared in publications including The Guardian, The Economist, and The Moscow Times. He has recently published a variety of pieces on Russians abroad, primarily in Georgia. We spoke with Mr. Ozlevsky for a more bottom-up view of this group of Russians.
Aaron Ozilevsky, welcome to Pindrop World News, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off with a description of how Russians are acclimating to life in Georgia. Are they finding work? Are they finding apartments? And in your reporting, do you find that Russians are building a stable and even potentially long-lasting um, lives here? Uh, I think I'll start off with the last point. Uh, for many, Georgia Georgia became a very um, an immediate uh, destination for a lot of Russians uh, right after the war began, and then subsequently uh, after the September mobilization was announced because of its uh, visa-free regime. So uh, Russians, and, and this applies to me as an American, we can stay there for uh, a whole year uh, uh, without a visa as long as we, or Russians cross the border and then come back uh, at any point during their stay. And the, the cycle uh, starts again. Um, so uh, I would say that, that for many, because it's so hard to, to get residency status there because the the general the, the job market in in Georgia is quite quite small many view it as a, as a kind of waypoint uh, to other destinations uh, primarily Europe uh, but to, to enter Europe people first need to apply for for various visas so I was just in Germany and I met a number of Russians who were there on freelance visas and uh, as well as humanitarian visas, I'm I'm currently in Vilnius, where I'm I'm writing about political exiles here, who who are also uh, have been granted uh, humanitarian visas as well, or or journalist visas, and <clears throat> I think the contrast between the 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 emigres in in Western Europe and and the emigres currently in Tbilisi is quite strong because once they enter Europe, they they sort of feel a sense of security. Uh, they've they've been granted permission, legal permission to stay in this country. They can work freely, whereas in Georgia the the situation is is quite in flux, uh, and because of how small the country is, uh, Russians uh, Russian emigres in Tbilisi have have formed a noticeable presence, but they are almost a totally separate community from the local Georgians. Uh, they open their own establishments there. Which which they which are only frequented uh, almost exclusively by Russians, uh, and they they kind of spend spend most of their time in in their own social circles, and uh, the 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 particular type of emigre that that comes to Georgia. And I'll, I want to say a disclaimer that these are primarily the people I've written about. I um, are hail from from Moscow and Saint Petersburg. They're kind of from creative circles from academic circles, journalistic circles, so these are kind of highly educated, uh, millennial age uh, Russians. And... Um, uh, Do you find that they're finding apartments well? Do you find that they're... You, one yeah. of the things you hear about is that Russians are... Um, a lot of them are IT specialists who come yeah. um, to Georgia and continue working for companies based out of Russia. Are you finding that that is mostly the case or are, are they finding local work as well? Um, what's the dynamic there? Yeah, yeah. So no, no. There, there's been no. I, I've heard very few cases where people have found local work, and, and that's correct. That a lot, a lot of them are also IT specialists. Something I, I think like fifty percent IT and fifty percent sort of this greater uh, creative class. Um, and they, a lot of them continue to work uh, on the Russian market. 
um, for and and yeah, and they are finding apartments, but but they're also their presence is is drastically increasing the rent, which kind of adds to the hostility from from the locals. Uh, factor in you know the the colonial history of of, of Georgia as part of the the Russian Empire, and then the the forced Soviet occupation. Uh, and and kind of this this creates uh, animosity, especially you know younger Georgians, uh, who who are now beginning to find a, a sort of political voice and an identity of their own, separate of of the Russian influence, uh, seem to seem to be the ones that harbor the most uh, resentment and skepticism towards the arrival of of Russians in mass. Um, you know, I, I, I keep uh, I keep coming back to this term, but I think it, it's a good one to, to sort of characterize the, this current wave of Russian immigration in general, not just in Georgia, but abroad. And the term is kind of awkwardness. Uh, and I think this stems from from kind of two major things. The first is that their their status is quite vague. They're not necessarily all exiles unless they're they were political activists who, who fled even before the war. Uh, because the the borders are still open for them to return, mm -hmm. unlike Soviet emigres uh, who had to completely sever all ties with the country and were not had to forfeit and their passports. These um, immigrants even maintain economic ties in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. They maintain economic ties. Some even pay taxes, uh, you know, to a government that is waging a war, and this creates a, a further ethical dilemma. But it but it's so hard to sever from their job, especially if they're in a place like Georgia or Armenia where, where there's very little opportunities for, for, for local work. Um, but yeah, the, it, there, again, there's this sort of vague status surrounding, surrounding their current position and, and there's no real tangible immediate threat to their danger. Uh, you know, in theory, they could all return to Russia uh, um, because, you know, insofar as they don't speak out against the war, they can continue to live, live out their lives if they put blinders on. Uh, and, and in fact, many, many, some, many do. I, I know, you know, quite a number of people who work in production, for example, videographers who have had to come back to, to Moscow or St. Petersburg for, for a month for, for a shoot. And it's always a very strange experience for them because they come back, they, they made this sort of conscious decision to leave. They disagree with the country's politics, but then they return for a month for work and they come back to a country where they see uh, propagandistic posters, military recruitment centers uh, all over the city, and they kind of feel that, that everything is changing. Um, but again, there is no real threat to their lives. They, they haven't really been displaced yet this can all change obviously in the future and even men you know even after mobilization uh, men because of how dated uh, the military recruitment system is uh, a lot of these recruitment centers rely on paper format nothing is digitized and so uh, young men uh, you know even those who have gotten draft notices they just can can continue to live in Russia as long as they don't show up at a draft center. It's not like they're grabbing people from the streets. Uh, so if they have the sort of resources, uh, they can they can freely continue to live and and and, and remain there. Um, uh, as as opposed to Ukrainian refugees, who are, they are running from from something very concrete. 
They are running from, there's an immediate danger to their lives. They're, they're running from an imperialistic force that is invading their country and destroying their homes. Um, yeah. yeah I, and, I would uh, say even, uh, another sort of wrinkle in that is that the people coming to Georgia are not even the people most susceptible to forced conscription, which are the people who are in the provinces and in the poorer regions of the country, not the highly educated Petersburg and, and Moscow um, intellectual class. Right, exactly. When you know, out of the out of these circles, I, I know quite quite a number of people, and I, I I still have not heard of a single case of somebody get, getting sent out to the war. And whenever I ask people if they know someone, they the answer is usually yes. But and I ask who, and and some distant relative, uh, you know, cousin's stepfather who lives somewhere out in Udmurtia Republic. So, yeah, typically it's it's these lower income working class people who get drafted, most often. Do you, do you yeah. get the sense that um, this is something I've sort of picked up on from reading the writing by Russians and, and watching Russian YouTubers who are now in Georgia or, or other countries, that a huge part of them leaving is less about the immediate danger of conscription and more about the fact that um, in this hyper-militaristic culture, um, of course, there is the, the, the threat of conscription. That shouldn't ever be ignored. But in this hyper-militaristic culture, this very authoritarian and conservative state, they just see absolutely no future for themselves as sort of a, a, a more liberal-oriented creative class. Is that the impression you get from a lot of Russians that you speak with? They just see no future for themselves in Russia? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, a lot of these people have also made posts on Instagram. I mean, they want they want to vocalize their support for Ukraine. They want to express uh, the, their disagreement with their country's politics, and they can't do that freely in 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 Russia. And so I think it's also a kind of a sense of guilt that's that's kind of forced them out. And yeah, I mean, there's there's really this is again with the contrast with Ukraine. There's a, there's a kind of clear A to B, right? If if Ukraine wins the yeah. war, uh, victory needs to be achieved. That's that's mm -hmm. the that's the clear and concise goal. And once that's achieved. There's possibility for a greater future. Ukraine will will receive lots of investment from the West. It will become this new geopolitical force. Whereas for Russians, it's it's very unclear. Does you know? Obviously, the, those who have left don't want their country to win the war. But what happens if it loses? Right? Is is there going to be a power vacuum? You know what what we just saw happen two weeks ago with the Prigozhin rebellion. Uh, you know, attempted yeah. rebellion that didn't really manifest into anything beyond, uh, you know, a lot of memes and, and more confusion about what, what's next. Uh, you know, is this, is this the alternative? Are, you know, are these Wagnerites, uh, hyper-militaristic, dangerous war criminals, uh, do they then come to power? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, they, they really don't know. They're staring into an abyss, and whenever I ask people, do, when do, do you think you'll ever come back, they say they just can't answer this question. And maybe they say, you know, 10 to 15 years from now. Um, yeah, and, um, and then, uh, so back to this idea of, of awkwardness. The, there's, um, so many sociologists are, are discussing, uh, talking about this, this phenomenon of depolitization. So, uh, it, and this applies very much to this kind of young creative uh, tech uh, millennial class from Moscow and St. Petersburg is that basically in the last five, six years, the, the society was was becoming less and less politicized. Politics became a, a thing, you know, exclusively practiced by the politicians. And um, 
and 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 life in Moscow and St. Petersburg was was really drastically improving. I mean, I I had spent uh, a year and a half in in Moscow and uh, leading up to in 2017 to 2018, so right before the World Cup, and it was a very clean, a very comfortable city. There were you know all these new uh, new small businesses uh, starting up. There was this gig economy with with Yandex, this this major uh, Russian tech corporation. There were delivery services. There were, you know, gourmet products. There were vegan cafes, and <clears throat> I think, kind of between this this millennial uh, urban class and and the government, there was this sort of unsocial, uh, uh, unspoken social contract that, after uh, 2011 and 2012, this was the these were the Bolotnaya protests. They were called the the biggest protests against Putin's claim to power that the country had seen since Putin became president in, in, in the year uh, 2000. Uh, the, these protests ended very poorly for the protesters. Many, many people were jailed. Uh, and, um, and basically, uh, yeah, there was this unspoken social contract that, that listened, like, if you don't step into politics, your life will still improve, and and many people had different career opportunities, and uh, and you know often with with kind of developing countries, there's this idea that you know but we're not gonna we're not gonna stay here our whole lives. The end goal is to emigrate somewhere to the west, to the United States. But when I when I lived in in Moscow, I really did not get the sense that that people wanted to go anywhere, and and they didn't. And I asked this question all the time: Did you ever think you were going to have to leave in in such circumstances? You know, you know who Vladimir Putin is. You know what your government is doing. Uh, but people truly believed that because the cities were kind of modernizing, the economy was modernizing, that that slowly, uh, gradually, the government will also modernize and change, um, and uh, and and kind of. Now people are having to sort of part with this with this comfort and privilege, and and it just uh, you know came came at such a quick and rapid pace, and I think people don't really know how to reconcile this. They're they're, they're kind of in a in a state of complete confusion and disarray. I'd like to pivot a little bit um, back to to Georgia in particular, and talk about what the kind of reactions I'm hearing um, in Georgia from Georgians uh, as an American, which is. Um, a mixture of uh, uh, that a lot of Georgians are feeling entitlement or ignorance coming off of the, the Russians. Who are the, 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 the perception is that the Russians feel entitled to a place in Georgia, and that feeds into old ideas of, of um, empire and near abroad and, and mm. sort of a, a special tie that Russians feel with neighboring countries, um, that they feel that Russians are ignorant of the history of empire um, that Georgians are almost entirely very well aware of. When you speak with Russians, um, are they talking about these things? Are, are, are Russians talking about the history of empire? Are they seeing the graffiti on the streets that say, you know, we want to be part of the West, we hate Russia? How are, how are they grappling with um, the reactions they're getting from Georgians? Are they grappling with that reaction? And are they grappling with these larger themes of empire and, and colonialism? I think, uh, I think we can invoke again this idea of depoliticization because I, the, these these subjects were just never discussed in in school. Uh, the fact that that Russia was was a colonial empire, and so in the education system, this was never touched on. I mean, in universities in the United States, there's so much critical discourse uh, about the role of the West and the role of the United States, and in 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 kind of in, in its in its own imperialistic expansion. Uh, in Russia, these things were just kind of taboo to to, to discuss. 
you know, I'm suddenly, suddenly seeing uh, all of these new publications uh, created by Russians that are devoted to decolonializing Russia, uh, um, kind of uh, awareness uh, and educating people on on the fact that the, their very territory is made up of of many indigenous peoples uh, spread across, you know, from from the westernmost point of the country to the easternmost point of the country, and and how kind of the Russian Empire slowly subjugated these people and, and russified them. Um, I mean, these conversations are they they do take place. They they do happen. I think. Russians are, are very bash. I often find that they're very bashful. For example, here in, in Lithuania, you know, I was I was out with a Russian journalist uh, the other night and, and we met some Ukrainians and I just saw how, how and a Belarusian as well. The Russian journalist immediately said, uh, you know, hi, I'm, I'm from Russia. You know, I'm, I'm here on a humanitarian visa. I'm I'm a journalist. I, you know, I, you know, I'm probably here in very di different circumstances than you is speaking to these Ukrainians and you know and the response she got was 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 don't worry about it we we understand what you're running from you know you don't have to apologize in front of us um, and uh, yeah this is this is certainly amplified in in Tbilisi uh, and I've heard in, in so many different activist spaces that that there are attempts to, to bring Georgian activists or Georgian artists uh, into collaboration, into some into some sort of discussion, but but younger Georgians just really have no no interest in in engaging in any sort of discourse, and uh, this is you know again, it's it's very difficult to unpack because it's it's there's there's so many layers of <laughs> of history involved and and kind of contemporary threads of of discourse, but. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think on an on an individual basis, case by case basis, there there probably have been interactions, and there are interactions between Georgians and Russians, and there, you know. But I think, and I I heard this also here in, in I'm currently in Lithuania. Uh, I've heard Georgians and Lithuanians say the same phrase: "We don't like them," and and them is just kind of this broad encompassing term. Uh, which doesn't, you know, d delineate by case by case basis, but it just, yeah, it's it's, we don't like them, the, the Russians who come here with their money, with their imperialistic attitudes. Uh, often you you see like a, a TikTok video or something of a Russian woman at a Georgian cafe, but uh, complaining about the quality of the food or something, and then this goes viral uh, in in Georgian circles, and they and they kind of latch onto this uh, to. to uh, latch on to this representation as, as the kind of broader picture of, of everyone, you know, the, they're thinking about all the Russians. Um, mm, so, yeah, I mean, it's, again, there's a lot of bashfulness uh, yeah. on the Russian side. There's, there are, there are attempts, but they just don't work. And, and, um, you know, we've talked a lot about depoliticization, but your writing does touch on political activity by, by Russians in exile. Um, I'd like to turn to a couple other examples that, that I think are really fascinating, but specifically in Georgia, um, of the political organization you, you've written about, what kind of stuff are you seeing? Yeah. So uh, from the very start of the war, and interest, it's okay, so let's scale back to uh, actually 2019, really. 
is when kind of the, the Russian immigration to Tbilisi began. It, it first started with a lot of creatives who were kind of bored with their life in Moscow, musicians, and there was kind of a, a, a an up-and-coming, kind of booming uh, cultural scene in Tbilisi, and these Russians came and kind of wanted to be a part of that. There was even a, a venue that was opened by Moscow emigres in collaboration with, with local Georgian artists. It was, it was called Butka, and unfortunately it closed down because of the pandemic. So that was kind of the very first wave, was this, these, these kind of creative artists. Uh, then in 2021, before the war, uh, Russia was the, the 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 Kremlin was was really beginning to to crack down on civil society. And in hindsight, many now say that this was probably in preparation for the wars. They wanted to jail or or squeeze anyone out of the country that that would try to try to lead lead some sort of movements in opposition to the war. Uh, so this this began with Navalny's poisoning, and then and then the Navalny organization. Uh, was labeled extremist, so all the Navalnyites had to leave, and then several other major civil society organizations were labeled undesirable, uh, which meant that they were, you know, subject to, to fines and potential imprisonment, and and some of the civil society activists I had spoken to, like, for example, uh, Anastasia Burakova, she's the founder of this organization called Kavchek, uh, which is funded by the oligarch, ex-oligarch, exiled oligarch, political opposition leader Khodorkovsky, Kovchek helps Russians uh, flee, the, flee their country right now. But basically she told me that uh, prior to the war, the authorities sort of began to hint that she has, you know, a two-month window uh, in which she can leave you know, otherwise she will then f face further legal persecution. So Tbilisi became a major destination in 2021 for, for Russian political activists, for civil society workers and journalists as well. Um, and uh, a lot of them have actually left the country now. A lot of them shortly after the war began moved to, to Vilnius, to Riga, and, and to Berlin, uh, and, and we, we quite often hear of, of cases where some Russian civil society activists that try to return back to Georgia are just barred from entering. Um, yes. And so there were, there were already a lot of political activists to begin with, and then kind of the, the, the February wave, as we call them, who came immediately after the war were people who, who made the sort of conscious political decision not to remain in Russia and came to, to Tbilisi en masse. And immediately... Uh, there were all sorts of initiatives, uh, uh, mostly geared towards helping Ukrainians. Uh, so there's this uh, various different organizations. Um, okay, so yeah, there were a lot of organizations created to helping Ukrainians. Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, evacuate from the country. Ukrainians on the territory of Donbass evacuate uh, the country via uh, Russia. Um, and that was that kind of the first uh, surge of political activity was 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 create these organizations that are going to help Ukrainians. Then uh, organizations were were founded uh, to 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 help Russians escape. Uh, one of them being Kovchek. Then there's another Tbilisi-based organization called Iditilesem, uh, uh, which means go by way of forest. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it was created. Uh, at, I mean, it's. Um, 
it, it's a Russian phrase that that just sort of generally means. Uh, can I swear on the podcast? Uh, yeah, generally means yeah. fuck fuck off. Uh, but it was it was created to help uh, mobilization d- d- deserters, both both deserters from the military who are already mobilized, and just men who get conscription notices escape uh, escape forced conscription. Um, so, and it's interesting because like as events unfurl, organizations are created to then. Uh, kind of uh, immediate, um, uh, organizations are as events unfold uh, organizations are then created to kind of adapt to these new events right so if if the first first thing was we must help Ukrainian refugees then there were organizations that were helping Russians leave and now there are organizations being created that are helping uh, draft dodgers um, um, but as far as the, the sort of future of civil society of, of of Russian Russian civil society in Georgia, I I really I really think, kind of, and I'm, we're already beginning to see this, is that they're they're gradually gonna gonna leave into into Western Europe, mostly because again, it's not quite clear how the the Georgian government feels about them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we don't really know what it means when they bar. Uh, Russian opposition activists from entering the country, but we can only assume that that perhaps they're doing that to to not appear to the Russian government uh, uh, that they are sort of a, a hub uh, yeah. for all these political opponents, um, and also because these civil society activists can can qualify basically for for Euro- European visas. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they they can easily qualify for humanitarian visas and, and get some sort of status elsewhere. I'd like to, before I let you go, I I do have one more question I'd like to get to, which is uh, circling back to Georgia. Most of your writing has focused on Russian immigrants, um, Mm -hmm. but you did report on the March protests in in Georgia against the the law that a lot of uh, Georgians described as a Russian-style foreign agent law, which would have um, established special foreign agent status for uh, non-governmental organizations that Mm -hmm. take uh, substantial amounts of money from, from outside donors. There's this large growing tension between, um, in particular, the liberal and Western-oriented population in Tbilisi and the uh, sort of neo-authoritarian or a liberal government that is run by the the Georgian Dream Party um, in in Georgia, which is sort of this very practical, at times even pro-Russian posture. Um, Do you see the issue of Russian emigres and Russian immigrants as exacerbating this tension? Do you think it even has the possibility to be sort of um, a central symbol of that conflict? Because one of the interesting things about this whole situation is that while the majority of Georgians are um, very suspect about the Russians coming in and want some kind of visa regime to be installed, the Georgian government has really welcomed them in, hoping for economic improvements. I know this isn't your um, field of expertise necessarily, but what is what is your impression from your reporting in Georgia on this? I don't think it'll be Russian people who will become kind of this the uh, symbolize this clash between the the, the progressive the, the more liberal oriented uh, part of Georgian the Georgian public and 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 the pro the the more I pragmatic or I, I don't want to call it more Russian because that's you know not, not <laughs> really objectively yeah. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but the the ruling the current ruling dream dream party. Um, but but it will be it's 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 Russia, uh, and and the outcome of, of Russia's war in Ukraine that I think will really have a major impact on 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 Georgia's future. I mean, uh, 
if you just walk into the stores, uh, into a grocery store, in, into a, a spar, it's not really a, a Euro spar, as, as the store is called, because if you look at it, the actual products, most of them, I would say a good 80% of them are imported from Russia. And so there, there are really deep economic ties to the country. Uh, I mean, just the, the, the physical size of Georgia, when you look at it on a map, its entire northern border is, is shared with Russia, with, including this you know, occupied regions of, of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And, you know, right above it is just this behemoth, uh, behemoth of a country that can just, you know, engulf it at any moment. So I, I, I really think that a lot of younger, you know, liberal-oriented Georgians are really supporting Ukraine because, you know, if, if Ukraine wins, Georgia can then you know, lean, lean into whatever this new kind of Ukrainian geopolitical force, uh, that, that, that could result, uh, that, that could, yeah, come about as a result of victory. Uh, because otherwise, you know, it, it's such a, it's such a small country. It's just, it can't really rely on its own economy. It can't, uh, it, it, it yeah. Um, so and, and I think some some civil society activists I spoke to are convinced that that the Georgian Dream uh, party, like uh, the Russian government, thought were were kind of aware that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and thought that the war would end in in four days, uh, mm-hmm. and and then eventually you know uh, they could become part of this greater kind of uh, geopolitical faction at, at the center of which is Russia and you know mm-hmm. and the other neighboring. Uh, countries, Armenia, and, and as well as the Central Asian countries, but but you know, I, there's no empirical evidence to this. No, you know, nobody knows really what the Georgian yeah. dream is thinking. People, people, you know, some of it's uh, kind of some of the people who who try to to rationalize uh, the Georgian dream's decisions say they're they're really just trying to play to play on both stools because they they don't really have a choice. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Georgian dream has really weaponized the trauma of the 2008 Russo-Georgian War and often label their uh, their opponents as uh, the party of the war. So uh, they say, I often, ironically, they say, what, do you want us to open a second front? Or whenever, you know, Europeans criticize, the European members of the European Union criticize Georgia for, for dragging its feet on the European integration pro- process, they they say you know do you what do you what do you want us to do do you want us to step into armed conflict with Russia, uh, and you know uh, I think it, yeah it was during the the holiday period over New Year's the 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 slogan of the, of Tbilisi uh, was Tbilisi the city of peace uh, so they're they're kind of really le- leaning into the, uh, uh, G- Georgia becoming the you know sort of, I don't know, yeah, avoiding conflict, yeah. And, and, yeah. As far as the Russian people, as the Russian emigres, <clears throat> it, it's difficult to say, I mean, wh- how many will remain in the country? Uh, can, can tensions increase? I mean, they certainly can. Uh, it, I think, I mean, I think, again, that will the status of Russians in Georgia will also be determined by uh, what happens on on the front with Ukraine. Uh, 
you know, I, th I think if, yeah, uh, yeah, I can't, can't speculate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like many other things in European and Eurasian geopolitics, the, the front line in, in Ukraine is, uh, the defining variable. Yeah. Um, I think we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, Aaron Ozilevsky, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, folks, it's time now for the Pin Drop panel. As always, you have the three Pin Drop producers here, the chief producer of today's episode, Nicholas Castillo, as well as Diego Austin, and myself, of course, AJ Camacho. I want to straight off hand it over to you, Nick. Uh, this was your episode. Why don't you start us, us off with a nice question? Yeah, sure. So one of the main themes I kept coming over again and again in my reading and in my interviews for this was sort of an awkwardness that there's a huge awkwardness with how to talk about this, this community, these Russians in Georgia. People don't know whether to talk about them as simple draft dodgers or as political refugees. Their relationship with Russia is, is really complicated. So I thought this would be a cool way to engage with to talk about that awkwardness, to talk about the extent to which this might be a unique migration in even human history, um, and sort of start from there about, about what we, we think is unique about this, what we think um, is interesting in that awkwardness. So if anyone has any immediate reactions to that, uh, go ahead and, and we'll start off there. Yeah, I guess in terms of immediate reactions, it does strike me as uh, rather unique in a lot of ways of being, you know, these people that come from a regime that is uh, so despised by the Georgian people. Um, and for that matter, not just Georgia, but other places where they, they end up going. Um, you know, Turkey might be another example. The, peop the people there are generally not the friendliest towards Russia. Um, and I know there's a rather significant diaspora that's gone there um, since the war started. Equally, I, I see to some extent a parallel, um, and Diego might have some thoughts on this, with uh, Cubans going to the United States during the Cold War. Uh, not in the same way that they have been, you know, faced such a great degree of, uh, you know, of uh, resentment for being sort of entitled, as a lot of the Russians are, are in Georgia, but to the degree that they're leaving uh, a very politically and ideologically charged enemy of the country that they are now in. Um, argue, I would say arguably the Cubans in America, although it's too soon to say, have seen a much greater success, at least in areas like Miami. Um, they've been more welcomed, perhaps. But, you know, historically, that's been very on and off and depends a lot on the area of the United States they've gone to. Well, I mean, as someone who grew up in, in Miami, at least, I can't really speak for Cubans in other cities, but in Miami, um, I, I see the parallel in the sense that people are escaping from an authoritarian regime, but honestly, not so much in the reception because Cubans are uh, on a large scale very proud to also be American. And they came to America as a country that it wasn't just, oh, we have to leave Cuba. I guess we'll go settle in this country. It was very much a country that Cubans like wanted to go to. And uh, I suppose uh, Cubans align with the values a lot. And uh, at least in Miami, we've been we haven't really had any friction with Americans. Uh, the bigger parallel I see is actually Estonia, because um, Estonia had a somewhat similar situation where um, they had a bunch of, they, they didn't really have the best uh, 
relations, I suppose, with the Soviet Union and its legacy after its its collapse. And they had now had this big Russian population that did not really share their same culture. Um, and it kind of led to movements to, for example, I think they said at one point, uh, you cannot become a citizen unless you learn Estonian. And maybe like they, they, there was a drive to get the Russians to align more with Estonian values and culture, it seems. And I, I kind of see a similar situation in Georgia, where it's a country that was in the Soviet Union, and a lot of the population doesn't really have the best perception of the Soviet Union. And now you have this big Russian influx for different circumstances in Estonia. This time it's people fleeing uh, a war and not get drafted, but there is a lot of tension with that. And uh, I think you said like maybe a feeling that people are entitled or something. Yeah. And Nick, I think you might be able to speak more specifically to that since you've been there for what, a couple months now? Yeah. I mean, I, I like both of the examples that you guys are getting at because I think they both speak to uh, I think there is a meaningful comparison to me, but in very different aspects of the situation with the Russians. I think in terms of like what you're talking about with Estonia, the role of historic memory of the Soviet Union, that disagreement about what was the Soviet Union. Was the Soviet Union a colonial empire that all these smaller peoples were sort of crushed underneath? Or was the Soviet Union this like large brotherhood of nations that happened to be centered in Moscow? So that kind of debate that happens a lot of the time between Russians and people from countries like Estonia and Georgia is relevant in both cases. But I do think the Cuban example is good also in that um, the, it's really the government in a way pushing this. Um, you know, we can talk about the fact that the majority of Georgians are pretty uncomfortable with, you know, 100 to 2,000 Russians showing up uh, on their doorstep in their country. But the government's really for it. The government's welcomed these people in. The government's even made it a little easier by resuming commercial flights between Russia and Georgia, which for years had not happened and was a pretty big controversy when it was resumed. Um I'll say also just in terms of the, uh, one of the things that strikes me as the most unique about this is the digital aspect. This might be um, the first like mass digital exodus. And I, I mean that in a, in a few ways. Um, these guys, the, the people coming to Georgia are some of the top creative and intellectual class of Russia, which means they're going to be way more online than people who might've been fleeing wars like Syria or Libya. They might be, and not, not, that they're using the internet more, but that they're more tapped into like digital infrastructure, things like online companies, things like IT companies, which is where a lot of these refugees, uh, not refugees, where a lot of the Russians work, things like um, publications that a lot of these um, Russians who are coming to Georgia work for. These are very online people and they're able to maintain a lot of ties um, digitally. One and, and because there is not a hard border between Georgia and Russia, the, the, the awkwardness of your attachment to, to Russia is really amplified. I think, you know, one, one of the stories that struck me the most was something that is in my interview with Aaron Ozilevsky. He tells the story of a Russian who's a film producer or a filmmaker, and he comes to Georgia after the war starts and he's here for months. And then he goes back to Russia for a shoot for two weeks and he comes back to Georgia right afterwards. That couldn't happen with like a Cuban refugee or something in part because that kind of digital infrastructure isn't there. So the Cuban refugee can't find a, a job in Havana for the weekend, but also because politically it would be impossible. And so really the, the digital aspect, I think, amplifies this alongside the political aspect. It makes it a very awkward, um, very shaky um, situation. I, I have a question about sort of the, the reception that Russians get in Georgia, because it seems like Georgians are quite divided. And from my, I guess, limited knowledge of Georgia, it seems like there's sometimes some discrepancies between measures the government takes and how a lot of the population feels. I mean, 
we saw this the big thing in the news uh months ago is the foreign agents law uh yeah. where georgia tried to pass the foreign agents law and that's these mass protests so what are the it, it seems like georgia is very divided on how they perceive russia and russians like what are are there any fault lines along which this happens like ethnic or like class or, or something like or is there is it part of any wider division in georgian society so from my reading, one of the things that you come across is there is some division by age. Younger Georgians tend to be a lot more hostile um, and younger Georgians tend to be a lot more hostile in particular to the public, uh, to the the, plate, the, the, re- the renewed place of Russian culture and Georgian public life. For young Georgians, they've spent years learning English. They've spent years learning about the West. They don't feel that Russia is relevant to their lives in any way except for the fact that it is occupying 20% of their country. That's a bit different than older um, people who, in a political sense, usually do have anti-Russian attitudes, but they're more comfortable with Russian culture because, um, you know, they, they grew up during the Soviet Union. There's some baseline familiarity between the Russian language and things like that. But by and large, I'd say, especially in a place like Tbilisi, the entire population tends to be pretty hostile to Russians. The real dividing line is between the population and in particular the urban population and the government. Um, that The government is very in favor of bringing these migrants in because they think it's going to boost the economy. And the population is opposed because they see it as raising their cost of living. Um, it touches on some really sensitive cultural issues. They're concerned about security. Um, that's really where the fault line is between the government and the population. And, and you know, I'll say, as, as longtime listeners of the show will know, we've covered, Pintrop covered Georgia before some time ago. Um, and I, I did a lot of work on that episode, although I've done relatively little, little on this one. And something that came up time and time again then, and that has come up in this episode, is this division between the government and the people. And, you know, back when I did that episode, the focus was largely on the European Union, for example. People, very pro-EU, government, more pro-Russia. This just has me wondering, like, is the issue of Russian immigration just going to be one more issue? And could it eventually be that straw on the camel's back? that leads to some sort of a really mass backlash against the government. Um, I I, I don't know if I I think it will, but it seems like a prominent enough issue in an already major division that it maybe could be. Yeah, I mean, the the people I've, the experts I've spoken with are a little suspect of that. They think the real issue is Russia itself, that that's really the defining issue. But I, 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 you know, there is a part of me that that wonders uh, about the Russians because I think that they're going to be here for the long haul. I think most of them probably will be. And I think there's only so long you can go with a pretty noticeable and large and wealthy group of people taking up a lot of space in the urban centers um, who occupy this sort of um, this interesting and sensitive place in a what what is it, in some ways a post-colonial society like Georgia before that really becomes tense. Um, one thing is that there hasn't been a lot of integration at all. Um, you can go to Tbilisi and you can spend your entire weekend in Tbilisi going to Russian-speaking bars, going to Russian-speaking cafes, speaking with Russians, and, and you can do that. Um, it's it's very similar, actually, to gentrification in American cities, but even more sensitive and even more combustible, I think. Um, I, and I think that that lack of integration paired with the fact that the Russians are by and large wealthier than everyday um, Georgians in Batumi and Tbilisi, the major cities where the Russians are, I think it could potentially long-term be a much more combustible issue. That the perception from the Georgian population is um, the economy is hard. Um, Wages are low. Cost of living is high. We're struggling. And instead of actually doing something about that, our government has allowed for the entrance of hundreds of thousands of people from a hostile government, from a hostile country, who are taking up resources, who are driving up the price of apartments, 
who are taking a lot of the better jobs. I think that is a much more potentially uh, combustible situation than a lot of people are, are talking about. Um, I want to move on a little bit. So we've got these 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 Russians in Georgia. The the numbers are anywhere between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand. I wanted to ask you guys, based on what you guys know about migration, what you guys know about the politics of the region, what do you think the future of this community is? Because when you when you speak with them, they themselves barely seem to know. Oh, I know, right? Even the guys I spoke with barely um, know. You know, it, it, it's. I I remember some of those uh, yeah questions being asked in the interviews. Um, yeah, it's, um, and in that sense, I'll say that the nature of the question has a lot of historical precedent, right? I think of like the Chinatowns in California, where a lot of people who move, a lot of the Chinese immigrants who moved to California in the early years uh, did not realize that they were going to be staying there the rest of their lives. A lot did, a lot didn't. And so the communities that formed there, you know, weren't, really planned in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the centralization, it, it kind of happened naturally to a certain extent, later with some enforcement from the California government and so forth. But um, yeah, in terms of the future here, I mean, obviously not being being an expert, um, it seems to me that the war in Ukraine is going to end eventually. Um, and I would reckon that at least within the next five years or so, it won't be a very active conflict. Might have something more like um, Afghanistan or Iraq, where there's a Russian presence and probably just part of Ukraine. Um, You know, rather like before the invasion happened, but now Russia has more territory than just Crimea annexed. Um, Insofar as that's the case, and from what I understand of this Russian diaspora, I think it gets a lot smaller. I think as soon as this this conflict and the threat of draft and so forth ends, or at least fizzles down a bit, I think you get a lot of people going back to Russia. Um, and I imagine as far as the community goes, long term, I see something more of assimilation than the creation of Chinatowns. Um, because as much as I know that there is a lot of resentment among uh, younger Georgians, I also understand that there is some amount of sympathy depending on when and why the Russian migrants came over to Georgia from Russia. And so I think in that way, assimilation is more likely than um, isolation within the country. But that's uh, that's just an educated guess at best, and it's not even that educated. Um, I, I'm largely in agreement with AJ. I, I think we're going to see a huge change after the war in Ukraine ends, whenever that is. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had some experience talking with Russians who fled from the war, and a lot of times it's been, you know, men of military age who just don't want to get drafted. I mean, my, my big experience with this, long story short, I was driven around northern Iraq for two days with some Russian guy I met on Reddit, and he apparently, this guy, Sergei, he was like, yeah, well, I was going to get drafted into the army, so I fled the country and I drove from Moscow to Iraq and now I'm just kind of starting this tourism business. But it, it seemed like he didn't really like want, he, he didn't like really want to be in Iraq or out of Russia. It's just, he just felt like he, he couldn't reasonably go back there and expect to live his life. He's going to get drafted into the army. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how uh, Russians feel about this in general, but he was, he was pretty anti-Putin. Um, but it, from what he was telling me, it, he seemed to indicate that 
um, whenever the war was over and there was no danger that he would be drafted, he'd be down to go back because at the end of the day, I mean, that's his home and that's kind of where he feels at home. And I feel like a lot of Russians in Georgia will probably, uh, it'll probably be similar for them that once this is all over, they'll probably go back home. Um, and I, But I don't know, it feels like in a lot of these post-Soviet states where you get a lot of Russians, it seems like Russians generally have a like a lot of trouble integrating. So for the ones that do stay, I guess maybe I'm more um, less optimistic than AJ is about them integrating. I, I think it could be akin to like a Chinatown situation where you kind of just have this different, like sort of semi-separate community of, of Russians. I mean, yeah, I... Um, well, briefly, for, first of all, I do, I'll say I think you make a good point, Diego, in terms of... Uh, yeah, when you consider how Russians have integrated in other places like Moldova, um, other post-Soviet states, the record for assimilation versus something that's a little bit more isolationist, yeah, it doesn't bode well on my uh, argument. Secondly, my gosh, this companion of yours, what a logic. I'm worried that I'm going to get drafted and thrown into a war zone in Russia, so I'm going <laughs> to drive to Iraq. Um, and as much as like I, I think that's hilarious, I think it also does make a testament to just um, you know how afraid a lot of those uh, a lot of these Russians are um, who are avoiding the draft and heading to places like Georgia. I mean, I'll, I'll say this on the issue. One of the most striking sentences that um, I heard from my interviews was um, from uh, from Aaron Ozolevsky, and, and one of the things he said is uh, talking about a lot of these migrants. He goes, they don't think politically; they think practically. So I think there is a strong case to be made that once the war ends, some, maybe even a, a sizable number could return to Russia. Uh, at the end of the day, that's, that's, you know, where a lot of them are going to consider home. But I think a lot of them coming to Georgia might have been a bit of a Rubicon. You know, um, a lot of them are going to get used to a country where you can speak freely about what's going on in Russia, more or less, where you can not worry about um, being policed and being um, thrown on to the front line. I think it, a, a thing with the Ukraine war also is that even if there's a some kind of calming down uh, on the front line, if there's some kind of ceasefire, it doesn't resolve the situation. I think it's going to be a lot more like sort of, um, you know, historically Israel and Egypt, um, where there's sort of every now and then there might be some kind of war that, that starts. So I think that kind of uncertainty is really going to keep people, um, especially in the creative class, especially who are, are left wing, especially who are in the intellectual class from, from going back to Russia. So I think I think long term, a lot of people are going to stay. And I'm also not very optimistic about integration. And I think in that way, a lot of the future of this popul Russian population in Georgia depends on the government. Um, right? The current government, pretty pro-Russian. They've probably done some favors for Putin before. Ivanishvili, who is considered to be the sort of guy behind the scenes who runs most of politics, was a pretty close pal of Vladimir Putin. Um, they, a former president of Georgia who Putin once threatened to hang, uh, if I may use the quotes, by the balls, uh, has been in prison since he returned to Georgia. Uh, this is a government that's very, very pro-Russian. And so if you're a dissident and you enjoy that freedom of speech, depending on how much you use it, the government steps is going to make a big difference in terms of your long-term future. So Georgia. two things there. First, I do want to fight the, the term pro-Russian. I don't think it's yet appropriate to apply to, to the Georgian Dream Party, um, which is the, the dominant party in, in Georgia. I, I wouldn't really call them pro-Russian, but I understand where you're coming from with that. And some people do argue that they're pro-Russian. And secondly, I, I should say that 
it, it, while Georgia is a substantially freer society than Russia, there is still the idea we should keep our heads down because there is authoritarian backsliding going on in, in Georgia. And the government might be fine with these Russians coming in because they're going to be uh, making a lot of money for the country in the long run, but they might get a lot more hesitant if they start you know, organizing protests or anything like that. So I, I think that's an important dynamic to keep in mind. Well, I think that's all the time we have for the panel, so that's a good place to end on. Now, folks, as always, we'll conclude today's episode with Spinning the Globe. And our pin has dropped on Israel and Palestine. So make sure to check your podcast app next Tuesday to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding one of the most requested topics in pin drop history, Israel Palestine. If you want to make sure new episodes of Pindrop are downloaded to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. Our guests today were Salome Kandalaki and Aaron Ozilevsky. I am AJ Camacho, anchor and co-producer at Pindrop, alongside Diego Austin. The chief producer of today's episode was Nicholas Castillo. Pindrop World News was created by Ian Kearns. <laughs>